Hello and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazie Cliviture. In this episode, our producer Lorna Allen speaks to Tracy Waller, Head of Programme of the Visual Communication MA at the RCA, and before that she was Programme Director of Graphic Design at Camberwell, Chelsea and Wimbledon College of Art. Lorna spoke to Tracy about interpretation of creative work, process stages, and Tracy's own journey with neurodiversity. So I'm Tracy Waller. Um, I've been in education uh, for 20 years now. My current position is the head of programme, or it's the head of visual communication at the Royal College of Art. And previously to that, I was the programme director for graphic design at Camberwell, Chelsea and Wimbledon, which is part of the UAM. But previous to sort of education, I was working in uh, television um, as a graphic designer for broadcast, for, you know, um, doing sort of drama title sequences, idents. I had about 13 years of experience working as a kind of freelancer and set up my own design sort of studio. That feels like a long time ago now, though. <laughs> I know. Well, we can talk about that freelance life the whole night, yeah. actually, as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a good conversation. Good conversation. Yeah, that's that's another. That's definitely another chapter of something else. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was just going to ask a little bit about what your connection um, and experience is of neurodiversity. And I, I think you had said before that you are dyslexic as well. And uh, I just wondered when you were diagnosed, if it was like at school or in further education. And I'm, I'm asking that because both Janik and I were diagnosed when we went back to do our MAs. So we were like in our 30s. Wow. Okay. So it's been, it's retrospectively, it's quite interesting to know when people, mm. yeah. So, well, actually, so for me, it's quite interesting because, I mean, I recognised something at junior school. I just recognised that I wasn't learning or I wasn't, I didn't feel I was having the same learning experience as other kids in my class. Like I could see I was slower at things or struggled with things and especially around kind of reading out loud or language. There was, I, I could feel that perhaps something wasn't um, the same as everyone else. And I, and I didn't know it was dyslexia back then, although I had a very proactive mum who's my younger brother, Paul, is more severely dyslexic than me and he was more disruptive at school so she she recognized something in him and she managed to take him out of school um and he was um on a Wednesday would go to a special dyslexic school but they didn't quite recognize it um with me because I think perhaps I was quieter I was less disruptive in the class um but it wasn't until I went to secondary school and the secondary school I went to, which in this, you're talking about 1982, 1983 here. So it wasn't such a big thing, dyslexia. They did have a dyslexic centre um, or a kind of dyslexic room, I would say, actually, in a kind of a different building at the school. And what they did there was um, just through some tests, obviously, identified I had dyslexia. And they used to take me out of... French and English to go into this room and and it's kind of a really it's sort of yeah it's a kind of a strange experience because you're removed from some from your classes with your friends and you're you're put into another room with two other people and you you know the the, the way the way it was addressed there was you had headphones on 
and you were listening to tape recordings. And so dyslexia, it was never explained to me properly. I knew it was perhaps I wasn't, I felt perhaps I wasn't as clever or I couldn't, you know, I had a learning, you know, I wasn't so good at learning or spelling. Um, but, I, but I never quite understood. And I never asked, actually, strangely enough. I never properly asked. And so it was kind of weird to be removed. And you had to sit there with these headphones on and your friends would walk past to go to the TV room and everyone could see you with these headphones on. So, you know, you felt kind of excluded. And perhaps I think... You know, you, you just sort of felt maybe, yeah, it wasn't so positive, the kind of, you know, this sort of experience. Um, and I can't remember what I learned. Like, I was trying to think about this when I knew I was coming to talk to you today about what, what did I learn from tape recordings? What, did, what sort of recordings were they? Like, oh, so they were recordings with phonic sounds on it, I think. They had phonic sounds and you would have to repeat things. And the thing is, I can't remember. I genuinely can't remember. But I remember the experience of having to go to this room and having headphones on and listening to, the, you know, the, the, the and it was the teacher. Um, her name was Mrs. McLeod. And, and she was an amazing person to have set this up in the first place. But I think yeah. it's... It very much has influenced me as an educator, those early, early learning experiences of a kind of being removed, being put somewhere else. And, and in terms of how you learn, was that the best way to learn? I, I don't know because I can't genuinely, well, probably not because I can't genuinely remember anything I learned in those sessions. God, it's, yeah, it's funny. I don't... I actually had no idea. I guess I always thought I just wasn't that clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, yeah, when I did my MA, I guess I was right. I had written some stuff as you do on an MA. And uh, yeah. my lecturers were like, um, have you ever <laughs> been tested? And I was like, how insulting. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> turns out I'm actually really dyslexic. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, okay. But um, yeah, we were discussing, I think, a little bit what you were saying, like, when you get told that, that's it. Like, there's just like, here you go, bye. You know, like, there's n there's no kind of, like, aftercare or kind of support. Well, in, in fairness, academic support at LCC was amazing to me. Yeah. And I really, like, I was like, I need your help for sure. Like, I'm there. But I guess when you, when you leave, you know, in the real world. But as we're finding out through this podcast, there is actually quite a lot of great support out there. And there's some really good people doing some stuff, like good agencies and individuals and mm, I think it's very different now I, I kind of um I sort of in awe of um my students now who talk about their dyslexia perhaps very different you know and very openly compared to my own experiences through education um so I you know I kind of really I sort of think it's really great actually how you know even through your podcast you're talking about it um, I didn't really have that kind of experience. I didn't talk about it so much um, at all, actually. Um, so you were at the RCA as a student yeah. and, and now you're there as an educator. So are there any differences um, and practices and attitudes relating to neurodiverse students that you've seen in between then and now? So you sort of said a little bit that there, there has been a bit of a difference. I think there is a big difference. I think education is different for a start. You know, when I was at the Royal College, um, you know, it was it's a completely different education because it was 1995 to 97 that I was there. 
But whether dyslexia was talked about, I don't remember because I didn't go for the dyslexia support there. This this is what I sort of kick myself about it now because I could have really done with help with my dissertation. I dread to have read that dissertation actually now. Um, but there was help. But I just, I don't know, I just couldn't go in. I couldn't cross that barrier to that room to that space it felt a kind of huge distance for me um I think it's because I didn't really understand the help I needed and I just wanted to sort of avoid it really and so and I don't know if that has to do with education or to do with myself and my confidence back then you know it, it was a long time ago and I'm much more confident in talking about dyslexia now I I pretty much will tell my students I'm dyslexic you know um straight away because I think it's really important as an educator you know you show the edges of yourself you're as vulnerable you know yeah. if you're you're in this education together you're working together and I believe in that side by side being together and learning from each other. Um, but I think one of the things I think is really interesting is that if someone did a project on dyslexia back then, it was about designing a typeface. I think there was a lovely typeface designed by Natasha French a couple of years after. No, she was younger than me. So, yeah, came, came up um, a couple of years under me. And she designed a really nice typeface that helped um, if you were dyslexia to read. Now, what I see are students, and, and particularly um, kind of the, some of the current projects, it's much more um, sort of activist. It's much more about challenging the kind of neurotypical world that we live in, and saying, "Hey, you know, this is not this is not right." We, you know. Dyslexia isn't this one way of, you know, we can all learn from dyslexia and neurodiverse ways of thinking. And how can we change our environments to respond to different ways of learning or, or thinking or being? And that I find really exciting. And I learn a lot from the students doing this because I think, wow, yeah, you know, this this is really important. And I think it's where my work's always come from, you know, being that 80s dyslexic child asking, you know, what can education now learn from neurodiverse ways of thinking? And, and all the work I've done sort of in pedagogical research has been about challenging um, kind of normative educational systems and structures and particularly around assessment. I have a real issue with assessment practices and oh, matrixes and and you know who are you who's anyone to define you an a b c or d on a day of an exam and I, and I you know at school you know I think you know that that exam you know sitting in a cold room in that moment trying to read questions that you can't read and somehow you're you're told that's you know that's your grade that's your learning that's your I, I find that quite difficult actually yeah, I absolutely agree with you. That makes me so mad. And I hate how they just, everything's like put into these boxes of learning and like young kids are not even giving the opportunity to learn in different ways. And it's like, they're just written off and like, oh, you don't learn this way. So you're no good at anything. And it's like, it just makes me crazy. Cause it's like, think of, especially in the world of creativity, like in any kind of diversity and creativity, it's just streamlining it all down this one path. And there's just like so much more to contribute. And think of all those people that are missing out. Like The world is missing out as well, isn't it? Because what we're constantly trying to do is make people conform. 
And actually, if you challenge those environments and think about learning, you know, you've got this amazing people, there's amazing kids, there's amazing everyone who just, we need those different kind of thinkers now. I mean, I think we really need neurodiverse thinkers because we look at things slightly differently and the world needs to be challenged. It's complex. So um, one way of being is not, not helping us, is it? It really is not. And we're, we definitely desperately need to try some other, some other things. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're definitely at that stage of, uh, right, let's get, let's get some other people on this now. Well, so that, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like, sort of ask the tricky question. So in this section, we're trying to explore um, what critique means, like how we how to critique, what the meaning of critique is for a neurodiverse student or, or person and, and kind of like their process and how we address that. So do you feel that critiquing work by neurodiverse students or employees at the process stage, the communication of their process methods may be lost or misunderstood? That was a mouthful. <laughs> I definitely could have done with a full stop in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, so in order to uh, understand that question, I, I really thought about the critique, and I thought I was thinking about the way I, as someone who's neurodiverse, goes through a process. And so our process often is we have four or five things going on circular. This kind of, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking through an idea or I'm coming up with an idea of something, it's not it's it's a weaving process for me. There are five things probably going on that I'm interested in and it's not linear. And so when I'm talking, I could be going round in circles and thinking through it's a conversation and it's a dialogue with myself and the work, and and it, that can be done out loud. So it has to go through many iterations to get to the point through words, because you're trying to articulate yourself, um, and the words can be lost or they're not. They they go through different stages where they can have some form of clarity. So I, I think when you critique a student as neurodiverse, you have to listen. And I think the biggest danger in critiques is people are not listening and they're not really listening. They're just yeah. responding and they're talking and they're looking for sound bites to respond. And I, and I think a critique needs more silence. Like we, you need to be comfortable with the silence that it's okay for say 10 minutes, everyone just to be quiet and not say something. And just to take something in, because often when you're critiquing, you've got 10 minutes per student, maybe. Or, or actually, let's think about even that. Maybe how you set up that critique should be in a smaller group or with peers. Or how do you facilitate a dialogue that's inclusive and encourages an individual voice to come forward through different ways? And so maybe it's you have to do that visually. I mean, I find Padlet's quite good at the moment because you can put words up, you mind map it. You know, it's not about kind of the beginning, middle and end. Yeah, you're so right about these kind of linear process. Yeah, my mind very much does this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but I think that's, that's exciting. That's what I think is really brilliant about neurodiverse um, thinkers 
is that they aren't just hanging on to one thing in that moment. They're looking at it or they will have five or six ways of looking at it and five or six different things that they're exploring. And because of those five and different things, when they come together, they've got a particular perspective on it. And I, I, I think that's brilliant. I think that needs to be celebrated more. It's something I've been thinking about as an educator is how... Um, you know, and I'm really interested in conversational practices and dialogic practice and it being inclusive. How do I facilitate or set up a room for that kind of conversation? Oh, it's really nice to hear you say it in that way, because as somebody who's like made themselves feel quite shit about themselves, like yeah. berating myself for not doing it the other way, it's like it's so it's been so nice to like listen to people like yourself saying that's a good thing instead of having listened yeah. to the fact that it was a bad thing forever. <laughs> well, it has been forever a bad thing, hasn't it? I mean, that you're, you're right to feel like that. That's because it has, it has been, we've been made to feel like that a lot. And that's probably stemmed back to your own educational experiences or, or your own kind of moments where things have not been um, facilitated in a way that allows for different types of conversations um I think in the industry I found it harder though I found that I find in education there's a real room for experimenting pedagogically and and looking at this when I was working in in TV I, I would have found that much harder to have found a way to critique or be critiqued and explain myself that felt a different type of pressure, but I was a lot younger then. And I, I wonder if the older me would be much better now. I don't know. Well, maybe because you have more understanding of what it means to you. But I think as a young person, and that that's, that's part of it, isn't it? Like, I think when you're in education, you get supported with your condition or whatever. And then you move into the real world. Who's, who's there to help you? Like, uh, do you feel comfortable talking about it? Do you like, you know, like there's always that fear of disclosure. Like, maybe I'll be like shunned out or not accepted or the people think oh I have to talk to you like this way do I or you know there's a lot of attitudes around and I'm not just talking about neurodiversity here like around mental health and things like that actually people are really like oh you know and it's like oh no. <laughs> it's I think that's a really good point when I think about working in tv and that kind of environment it felt much more pressure to be a particular way you you couldn't say oh well I'm dyslexic or I've got mental health issues so I, I want to approach this differently that would have felt quite a hard conversation actually to have it's a really valid conversation to have and I think yeah. it's one that industry needs to really think about kind of what do we all have to work this one way you know there must be other ways of working I was going to ask you like was there any particular situation where you were being critiqued and then part of your process dialogue was like misunderstood and did it, how did you sort of deal with that or? I've always, I mean, when I was at college, uh, I would avoid critiques. I genuinely avoid critiques. Um, when I was on the BA in St Martins, I, I didn't go to them. I avoided them. I felt because I knew in that moment, in that pressure, that moment, because back then they were huge critiques, they were huge crits, yeah. and it would be, you know, you standing up and the teachers talking or feeding back to you. They, they weren't peer, uh, you know, they weren't peer facilitated or peer learning. It was very much about the tutors feeding back. 
And for me, that was much too painful. I, I just, you know, it, it's weird because I stand up in front of 120, 30 students and I can talk. And, and education, actually teaching, has helped me overcome a lot of that. But when I was a student, I would avoid critiques, completely avoid them. Oh, how come you ended up doing, like, getting into education? So I've just gone off a little bit there as well. Um, well, it was just when I left the Royal College, I worked for a, a design um, TV company, a broadcast TV company that did um, sort of branding identities for TV channels. And I knew I just wanted to do that for a year. I wanted to get the experience. And then um, there was a the director I met, of a kind of moving image director that said... I could come and work with him. I could be like, a, he'd be like a mentor and I, he gave me sort of an apprenticeship and it was amazing, amazing opportunity. But I'd started to, in order to sort of facilitate that kind of work, which wasn't kind of a lot of work at the time or a lot of money, I started teaching and I really enjoyed it. And then I got a point to at Chelsea College of Art and I had my own um, design company and was still doing TV graphics. And then when I had my kids, it just felt that education was a really good place to work when you had children and summer holidays. And actually, I was becoming more excited by education. I felt it was a really creative space. Um, it was exciting working with students, coming up with ideas and projects. So um, it really just started like that. And actually, I was really lucky. I kind of was promoted and, and ran the MA at Chelsea, even through my maternity leave. And I had some really good people support me through, you know, so instead of kind of normally you go on maternity leave, you get you feel like you're going to be forgotten about, whereas I was promoted. And actually, you know, through education, they've been really supportive of me having young children as well. So I, I've been quite lucky there. I think very privileged to have had that support. Yeah, I think support is like, it's so important in, in what you do in life. And in, 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 as a creative, it's like, feels like it can really make the difference, all the difference to moving ahead. So talking about support, I was going to ask if you were ever like particularly quite critical of yourself and your own practice or like ever really quite hard on yourself. Um, and would you have any advice for people looking to be less self-critical? Yeah, I was really hard. And I think, um, yeah, I'm I'm still my own worst enemy. I am hypercritical and want more and more and push things. And I do think um, as I've got older, I've, I've kind of learned to wrestle with that more and be a bit kinder. But also I think I've learned that um, as you get to know yourself a bit better, you kind of start to celebrate your way of doing things actually you think okay do you know what it's all right that I, I think I push back a bit more now you know you you I start to challenge systems or ways of working that stop me from working the way I want to so you know we, we live in a kind of really demanding society that wants things fast whereas I will do things you know if I'm writing something and I have to do a lot of writing it it takes me a long time. I will get to the space everyone else has got to, but it will take me much longer. And I've learned to trust in that process myself and do it my way. Don't do it someone else's way because that's where I think you start to, especially if you're neurodiverse, if you try and do things in someone else's methods, you just 
I think it's where the kind of uncertainty happens. But if you can really learn uh, your way, your process, your journey, how you go through things, that you will get stuck. You will get this moment of kind of, you know, where it all goes round in circles. And if you can learn to get through that and trust through that, you do come out of it with something I think quite unique. Um, and, and that's the bit I would want everyone who's neurodiverse to celebrate and hold on to is that uniqueness, because I think it's really important. Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of even at that stage myself now of like, yeah, trusting that I'll get there in the end. That it's like, sometimes the process is so painful. It's really like... Oh, it's painful. And it's really messy. And you would have been really messy at times. And you would have got it really wrong at times. And at times you've made such a tit of yourself. But I think you have to go back in and be really positive about that because actually that's how you learn we're all taught to learn through making mistakes and if you're consistent and keep working through it you do you come out of it the other end and I've put myself in oh my god I put myself in positions where I am so out of my comfort zone I can't tell you I just feel like oh my god what am I doing here and then I come through it and it might be really messy it might be really bonkers but I come through out the other end and I'm like okay I've done that and I did it my way. <laughs> it sounds a bit like a sort of song, a Sex Pistols song, but but I think you do need a little bit of anarchy and activism and non-conformist about you to get through it. And you have to hold on to that. And I think it's super, yeah, I keep saying it's super important and I, I can't think of another word right now, but I, I think it's no. exciting. Yeah, no, you're so right. It is really exciting. And it's really great to talk to someone who finds that exciting. And, you know, our society is always just pushing us down the same route all the time. And yeah, it's so hard when you feel like you're doing the wrong thing all the time. And it's really refreshing to talk to people that are like, no, <laughs> no, well, that's part of the fight, isn't it? It's about challenging what we've been told is normal. I mean, I would really question what is normal and if anyone is normal, actually. What what does that mean? Because, if you know, really, all of us are really interesting and diverse people and we should be allowed to celebrate in that. And, and the fact that we're told, and I think it goes back to school, where you have to conform. You're taught one way, you have to learn one way. I just, you know, I feel quite passionate about those spaces, you know, breaking those spaces about other ways of learning and being is important. Uh, individuality. Oh, well, but when I say individuality, I don't mean that as all, you know, in the Thatcher, me. I mean that in a community collaborative way. You know, I think that's quite important to say that. I know. <laughs> It'd be great to see like kids getting to see a whole plethora of like ways of learning and then seeing which way works for them. Like, you know, taking kids out to like trees and like hanging out in nature and like they might just learn by touching and smelling and being around it. Or like maybe some people will sit by just sitting at a de like learn by sitting at a desk or others will learn purely from discussion and pictures. And it's like you were, you never have those, those options aren't available unless you've got like an incredible family that has time to like expose you to all of that. And that's like, you know, not um, feasible for like most people. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I watched my brother who's is more dyslexic than me and, and his way of learning was to take things apart. You know, he took everything apart, 
or he climbed it or he, you know, threw himself over a fence and broke loads of arms and legs. And, and he, he, that was, he, he was much more physical about his learning. Now, that's brilliant way of learning as well. But sitting at a desk at school through books just, you know, wasn't, wasn't for him that, you know, he could learn as much through experiencing things and taking them apart than he could from a book. And, and that, that's, you know, I think that that is really interesting um, to see and it should be celebrated. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways now. I'm like, oh God, I'm always, every conversation we have, I'm always like, yes, yes. Does it, does it help well, you understand, through these conversations, are, are you, is it helping you understand oh, your dyslexia? So much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been a very emotional journey. I don't know if Chinook feels the same, but <laughs> it, for me, cause there's a lot of learning, a lot of like making sense. And we can't wait to like share this with other people if it's going to like help them in the way that certainly helped me already. But you said it's, it's quite interesting what you just said, because you said, oh, I'm quite an emotional person. But I, I feel that when you're dyslexic, you're intuitive because you're, you're and you are emotional because you're learning if you can't, if you're at school and you can't learn one way, your senses take you somewhere else. So you go, you, I think you become more intuitive and you are more emotional to your senses and your space and your environment, whether you're in tune or at odds with it. So I, I think that's sort of heightened. I mean, this is my theory personally, but yeah. I feel that I perhaps where. I might not have been able to read a piece of theory and understand it in from the text. I certainly got it when it was explained to me. I didn't sometimes need that text. The text just helped you um, use big words to say it in a kind of, you know, certain way. But you you knew it through lived experience, something, you know, you could sense way, the way things could be looked at or explored and you perhaps did it more spatially. Yeah, yeah, it isn't interesting that like thinking around the ways of expressing how you feel about something that if you can't verbally yeah that's quite a source of frustration for me sometimes because I you know it'll come out in, a, in an emotional way instead of like I can't articulate how I'm feeling right now it's just yeah, yeah. I often think I need a messy paintbrush but I'm not that kind of artist <laughs> um, so I don't want to keep you too much longer I was just gonna I think I was only going to ask you if you wanted to leave us with any any sort of information. Um, I saw that um, in the RCA there's like a neurodiverse group, so I didn't know if you if if it was student led or if you knew anything about it. Yeah, it's student led, um, which is super amazing actually. Um, it's it's uh, led by a second year visual communication student called Alice. Kel, I hope I've said her surname right. It's K E double L, um, and it she she's just done a workshop actually about visualizing um, neurodiversity. But I I asked her to just write a couple of things for me. So so I was using you know her words of what she was looking at. Um, and she's really interested in encouraging the participants of the workshop and of this group to visually embody their own experiences of living with neurodiversity in a neurotypical world. So this is also what I mean about the kind of neurotypical. And they're, they're a collective space of resistance. Um, they're a platform to share resources, experiences, challenges and advice relating to life as a neurodiverse student at the college. 
And this community aims to be a space of solidarity and advocate and to advocate to action on issues experienced. And that's wonderful. I, I just think it's great. Um, and, you know, already, you know, they've got really intriguing um, outcomes and they've had some great conversations that started some collaborations across the school. So it's not just with the School of Communication. They've got different students coming from the um, School of Sculpture and Fine Arts. So, yeah, I think oh, that's a great, great project. And, you know, oh. it just comes from the students. I mean, that's that's brilliant, I think. So. And um, oh yeah, and is there anything you wanted to leave us with? Did you want to like plug anything? Well, I mean, I suppose, gosh, plug. Um, I mean, I'm always plugging students and their work, but I think for me, well, I've already sort of said it. I think, I think, what can education learn from neurodiverse ways of thinking? How can how can we teach? that facilitates every type of learner. I mean, that, that's, that's a question that's come up for a long time, but I'm really interested in kind of the way we think in a sort of neurodiverse way. And, and you, you can see on my wall up here, I've started weaving. And often when I'm reading theory paper, I'm always struggling and, and I can't just read. I find that through the physical act of weaving, I can show you. I somehow understand a little bit better that text. I have no idea where this is going, um, but somehow it helps me. So also when I write, if I'm writing, I have to walk. I can't just sit in these particular spaces that I find difficult being neurodiverse. I don't sit still. I'm either walking or I'm weaving or something that helps concentrate my mind. And, and I haven't worked out why, I think what I'm interested in is non-traditional or non-academic ways of learning. And, and yeah, whether that oh. makes any sense, I don't know, yeah. because it's still... Oh, so, oh, Tracy, I think I could talk to you for like a really long, much longer. Like, I, I it, that's something what I, I sort of like, I get kind of annoyed with academia as well, because it feels so like difficult to get into or be in that space when you feel like you don't are not allowed there you can't articulate yourself in the same way as other academics somehow and I think I struggled that with my MA because I felt like oh, should I even really be here like yeah but I think that's where we need all a little bit of bell hooks I don't know if you've read bell hooks but you I think oh, right okay this so read bell hooks and read teaching to ta transgress uh, she's amazing and this this will change it's when I read her books I, I this is where I was emotional because I was thinking I wish I'd been taught by her I wish because she talks about bringing your vulnerability in the room she talks about teaching to the whole person not just to the brain to their body to to who they are and where they come from and 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 it's just she you know she she's got She's, there's about three books. There's five. Oh God, there's so many more books actually. Um, but at the moment, there's one I'm reading on teaching critical thinking, and there's a really lovely one on conversation, which is something I'm particularly interested in. And you will be because of this podcast. So I highly oh. recommend you read her because oh, that's the education you should want. If you want to go into teaching, that's the kind of educator you should look to be. Well, I must say you're. Your students are very lucky to have you and I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks so much. Oh, Tracy, thank you. You've been listening to Square Hole. On behalf of its creators, Lorna Allen and Janook Sarkar, 
We hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity. We would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law, who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally, thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.